I'll tell you a tale of the bottomless blue and its hay to the starboard hole. Look out, Madam Mermaid, be waiting for you in mysterious fathoms below. Isn't this great? The salty sea air, the wind blowing in your face. <laughs> Perfect day to be at sea. No, uh, uh, delightful. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen? And it's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 91, and our movie this week was Disney's 1989 animated feature, The Little Mermaid. And joining me to talk about it, because she had never seen it before, is Jeannie. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I am quite well. So you had never seen The Little Mermaid before? No, I haven't. Was, was I have it this um yes and no. <laughs> okay. Um I know that this this was kind of the start of the the Disney Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Um and at the time I was in my 20s okay. and I have this mental block in my brain and I I can't explain it other than um when I was a teenager I decided that I was too cool and too old to watch cartoons. So, okay. so when cartoons kind of pop up into popularity, I I don't necessarily actively avoid them. I don't pay attention, Fair so enough. I don't watch them. You know, um, so I I never watch this. And it, this is one of those that everybody, when they find out that I haven't seen it, are always like, "You haven't seen the Little Mermaid." I'm like, yeah, no. <laughs> well, you know, this this would would have been, as you mentioned, kind of the start of the Disney Renaissance. Um, they had the '80s weren't kind to Disney animation. Um, the beginning of the decade, Don Bluth left and started his own company, uh, and he had been there for quite a while doing a lot of good stuff. So he left partway through. I think it was the Fox and the Hound at the time, which delayed that movie. They made uh, the Black Cauldron which was their first PG animated film, and it bombed horribly. Nobody went and saw it. And even with stuff like The Great Mouse Detective, which was, I think, 1986, they were, it did commercially, it did okay, but it still wasn't quite that same level of sort of Disney. It wasn't Cinderella. It wasn't Sleeping Beauty. It wasn't 101 Dalmatians. And then uh, a couple of the guys that worked there, and let me see if I can find their names because I had it, um, were, where'd they go? Where did they go? Ron Clements and John Musker directed this, and they came to, uh, I think it was Jeffrey Katzenberg was running Disney Animation at the time, and they came to him and said, hey, we want to do The Little Mermaid. And they were doing kind of like this gong show style um, pitch meeting. And he was like, eh, no, we're doing a sequel to Splash this year. Let's let's avoid that. And this was like 80, 85, 86, right around there. So they kind of sat on it for a little bit, but finally were able to do it. And come to find out, and I thought this was really interesting, Disney had been thinking about developing a Little Mermaid animated uh, feature as far back as in the 1930s. Like, Oh, really? Yeah, soon after Snow White which was their their first animated feature. 
they were already thinking about doing the little mermaid they were going to do kind of um do you do you remember uh like uh mr toad and ichabod crane where they would have like a couple they would have a couple of shorts and they would package them together and make it a feature length i vaguely remember that yeah Mm. So that was an example of one, but they do a, they did a few of those. Well, they were going to do something like that with Hans Christian Andersen stories, and The Little Mermaid was going to be one of those. What they found when they went to start writing this and some of the changes that they wanted to make to the original story were very similar to what they were doing back in the 30s and 40s. So they, they just adopted a lot of those same changes and started working on this animated one. And this was not only the kickoff of the Disney Renaissance, it was also the last hand animated disney film um oh really fully hand animated hand painted disney film after this was the rescuers down under and then beauty and the beast and those were hand drawn but they were digitally painted so i thought that was an interesting kind of it's almost it's this weird stopgap sort of bridging between a couple of different eras of disney yeah i said rescuers down under was after this yeah yep I thought all the rescuers stuff had happened before this. That's interesting. Well, no, there was like a 14 year gap between those movies because the rescuers was 77, 78, somewhere around there. Okay. And then, yeah, down under was 90, 90. Um, Because this was 89, rescuers down under was 1990, and then Beauty and the Beast was the next year was 91. So, okay. that, of course, kicked off the, you know, then you had Aladdin and Lion King directly after that. That was like a three, four-year stretch where they just home run after home run. But this kicked it off. This actually set the record at the time for the largest domestic box office for an animated film. Um, it had beaten out, because that was one of the things in the 80s was Don Bluth Entertainment was just was wiping the floor with Disney. They were Disney was putting out good stuff. They were doing okay, but they weren't doing as good as Don Bluth. Land Before Time, right. um, re- uh, not Rescuers, uh, American Tale, yeah, uh, Secret of Nim. Those were all doing just gangbusters. So this finally beat that. This movie did in its initial run. I would think it was eighty four million somewhere around there. Eighty four, eighty five million. Um, oh wow, that's huge in that in that era. It really that's is huge. And. Yeah, it just sort of, it changed things for Disney and got them back on top. And part of that was they went with a very Broadway-style musical, which they had gotten away from. Um, even the musicals that they had weren't that same Broadway style. So they really they really dove into that and really kind of leaned into that, which I thought worked really well for this movie. Absolutely. And it also got them a, an Academy Award for Best Original Score and best original song under the sea actually had two uh under the sea and kiss the girl were both nominated for best original song but under the sea won. yeah the music in this is fantastic it really is and here's another funny story uh the song part of this world which pretty big theme throughout the entire movie that music gets played a lot was almost cut what (laughs) so early early test screenings they uh the kids that were in the audience were getting restless during that song and and so i can't remember who if it was katzenberger or Iger or somebody at high up at disney was like you know th- that song didn't test very well we might want to cut that one out and they they fought to keep it in there and 
I think what they had, what the directors had told him at the time was like, it would be like cutting somewhere over the rainbow out of the wizard of Oz. Like it's that important to their story. Absolutely. Yeah. So they fought for it. It got left in, but the second test screening did a lot better because it actually had completed animation and it was colored and all the stuff that the first test screening just didn't have. So we almost would have had this movie without that song. And honestly, it's a totally different movie. You cut that song out. I don't know what you would have even replaced it with. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know either. <laughs> and I, you know, I understand from the business aspect why they do screen screenings like that. But at the same time, I think that movie production by committee like that, at that type of level mm-hmm. is detrimental to the process. Um, you get, you, because you're just going to get some, sometimes you're just going to get bad, ba- a bad group. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. just happens, you know? Um, and, and, you know, you got all these people, uh, uh, you know, middle management, middle management is always trying to justify their jobs. So they always, so I get, I, from, from people in the industry that I've listened to, you know, that they, they say that many times a lot of the notes that they'll get will be from middle management trying to justify their jobs. Just. Yeah inputting something just to input something and it doesn't make any sense pretty much i I, so this is just kind of one of those examples where that that screening process the 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 lesson they got out of it is just flat out wrong (laughs) and i'm glad they didn't listen to it (laughs) oh yeah absolutely and what's funny is you think about it and we think of especially today disney as this giant business behemoth right and everything is by committee and they i mean the way they took over both star wars and marvel and have sort of folded them into what disney does in general but that's nothing new obviously this was no. 1989 so they were doing test screenings probably 88 because i think this was the animated features usually have a development time of like two or three years at least they did at that time uh, especially this one being hand drawn and hand colored, so it's just crazy to think that like that was the norm back then. Still, was yeah. test screenings and yeah. by committee, and and you know it wasn't. Uh, and that's part of why Don Bluth left and started his own company was he got tired of that, and he he's just like I want to make the movie I want to make. Let me do that. So he did, and he's made some great animated features, but they're very different from Disney. Disney's got a style; they have a what they want. And even with Pixar, to an extent, Pixar has had to kind of mold themselves into that. Because you look at some of the stuff the Pixar people have done outside of outside of that, like Brad Bird working on, uh, was it uh, Mission Impossible, I think. Um, Ghost Protocol was Brad Bird directed. And it's yeah. obviously very different from a Disney film. Um, he gets to do some new stuff. So, you know, it... Disney, I have a weird relationship with Disney movies in general. They have a lot of properties I really like and a lot of nostalgia and a lot of things that I loved growing up. But I was more of a Warner Brothers cartoon guy when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. Like that was funny. Yeah, that was my Absolutely. style. I love that more kind of vaudevillian sort of Bugs was the, the guy from Brooklyn. I think was like it was a I want to say it was a Chuck Jones documentary I was watching a long time ago. And they talked about the difference between Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny was Mickey Mouse was was a uh, a more refined or or better behaved person, whereas 
um, Bugs was the the guy from Brooklyn that was the smooth talking street tough. And that yeah. was so that well, was also um, Looney Tunes was more Looney Tunes started out as as shorts to be played before movies mm-hmm. for adults, whereas Mickey. I believe, and, and, and uh, somebody will have to correct me if I'm wrong on this. It's been always been my impression that Mickey was always geared towards kids. Bugs was never intended to be. It, it ended up that way, kind of like the Flintstones at this point. But Bugs was never intended to be um, uh, for kids. It was for a, it was for adult entertainment. It's their it was their version of The Simpsons. It was their version of you know, South Park, it's adult entertainment. So, it, so he's, so that the humor is obviously going to be very different. Plus the, as you said, the, the, the basis of it was very vaudevillian. Yeah, I can see that. I, I, I can't say one way or the other, but that makes a lot of sense. I know that a lot of the Disney shorts started the same way where they were pre-roll for movies and whatnot. Um, but I know that I I believe you're right in that, you know, Disney's stuff was geared towards family friendly and children and Warner Brothers wasn't necessarily not for kids, but they were they were not exclusively saying we're going to make cartoons that kids want to watch They're Exactly. exactly. That, that, and that's that's what I mean. I don't I don't mean like it's, you know, it's like heavy metal level um, <laughs> yeah, entertainment, but it's it's geared for all audiences more more focusing on adults you know where you have adult humor that the kids the kids don't necessarily get the subtext but they get the they get the joke mm-hmm. you know they they get that as funny um whereas disney was always kind of geared uh, fantasia was what was one of the exceptions where it wasn't geared strictly for a child audience yeah that's true and that uh i i forget sometimes that was their third animated feature was Fantasia. I mean, yeah. that's pretty impressive. And it know, is like or hate Disney. They have made some amazing, amazing animated films over the years. Going all Absolutely. the way back to, to stuff like Snow White. My, my main concern about, about Disney is, um, I, I, I firmly believe that competition breeds, creativity mm-hmm. and basically disney has gobbled up all the competition so now uh, on, on the one hand i i think it's very very apt of them to kind of step back and let the individual studios that they gobbled up to kind of run on their own mm-hmm. um you know the, the, each one each one has their own way of doing things but at the same time they are still disney and Disney is standing over them. And it, it concerns me that there are not more studios left. Yeah. Yeah, because at one point, Disney kind of had all the talent, right? And then that talent started to break away and started to go to other places. Um, and so then they just decided, well, instead of that, we'll just buy up all the in- intellectual property. So, yeah. And there's there's good and bad to that there's good in that you get this great pool of talent and this great pool of of um ability there and they've got the money to back it up but yeah everything becomes disneyfied too absolutely so that's that's where i have that kind of love hate with it and you see it go in kind of waves too i mean you had 
they sort of dipped in the 70s and in the 80s in their animation department. And then they started to pick it back up, and it got better. And then we have the Disney Renaissance. And that went for a number of years. And really post kind of Lion King is when it started to taper a little. And that's when they they folded in Pixar. And now you had Pixar, and that set it to a different level once again. In some ways, Disney sort of had to compete against themselves because they still, even with Pixar around, they still had their own animation studio. And so with that, they managed to um, kind of bring a renaissance of of their Disney animation once again. And you're seeing that a little bit with some of the more recent stuff like Moana um, as as a really good example, which was actually directed by the same people that directed this. Believe it or not, I yeah. did not realize that. Yeah, Ron Clements and uh, and John Musker they were behind. Let's see, uh, Moana was theirs. The Little Mermaid, uh, Hercules was them. Aladdin was one of theirs. So they worked together and they did a pretty good job of uh, of putting this stuff out. Now, another knock on Disney, um, and I don't want to make the whole the whole show just talking about Disney as a whole, but. Another knock on Disney is that they have a tendency to whitewash, I guess would be the word. Yes. Yes. Um, they're going to adapt stories. I get that part of it. But the the controversy can come from taking a story that's set, say, like Aladdin, where it's set in a um, Middle Eastern setting, but then your main protagonists tend to look very Caucasian. Uh, strangely, yeah. like out of place. So that is a problem. I think they are, whether it's public scrutiny or not, they're getting better with it, but it's still, yeah. they, ha- they have a way to go. Yeah. And my other biggest problem, my that's my, that's one of my biggest problems. My other biggest problem with Disney as a whole is the whole copyright issue. Well, yeah, that's a whole, that's a whole other discussion we could have. I could, go off about that for quite a while <laughs> about uh i just saw something today i think it was or in the last couple of days on twitter that the great gatsby uh is about to go into public domain yeah and uh, i think the the comment was great gatsby goes into public domain in like a month so be ready for eight adaptations over the next four years and yeah like, well, yeah that's probably going to happen um <laughs> yeah I, the copyright thing does bug me because i do feel like there should be a point at which a creation becomes public domain regardless. Um, Absolutely. And, and Disney definitely is the spearhead behind the current copyright laws that we have, and that's why they are well, able to buy up all this stuff. That's because of Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Oh, totally. 100% because of Mickey it's, Mouse. It's, uh, and, and, but I, I, well, I, I think you're, you're right. We can go on about this, but I think <laughs> the last thing I'll say about this is that they, what they, what they should have done is remade the laws instead of extending the period. Mm-hmm. Disney, uh, well, Mickey Mouse at its core is the the for a, for a sports reference the franchise player of the studio, mm-hmm. and that that I think puts it in a different category than something that something like uh, a like the great Gatsby, for example, going into public domain and, and the, the law should reflect that. Well, and to use your sports metaphor, 
so Michael Jordan is the franchise player for the Bulls, right? He He's synonymous with the Chicago Bulls of NBA basketball. But at some point, he's no longer there. He's no longer able to be there. His career ends, and the Bulls as a franchise need to move on and need to get more get new players, whatever, you know, however that goes. And I sort of feel almost like that should happen, or at least the, the idea yeah. of that could happen with these characters. Where now the difference there, of course, is an intellectual property. A character never really retires. Uh-huh. You know, at some point, Michael Jordan no longer can physically play basketball at the highest level. Right. Whereas Mickey Mouse can always be, he's ever good. I, think, I so, think it's more, actually, I think it's more similar to Ronald McDonald and Mickey Mouse versus Mickey Mouse and Michael Jordan. Okay, that could work. Ronald McDonald is the spokes character for McDonald's. Mm-hmm. He's always going to be the spokes character for McDonald's. That. That is their advertising campaign. They they rework how the advertising campaign works, but he is at the core McDonald's associated. Mickey Mouse will always be uh, Disney associated. Whereas Michael Jordan, yeah, he was a bull. You'll always consider him a bull, but at at at, at the base level, he's the NBA. Yeah, <laughs> which is which is a little bit different. That's true. But, I. We should we should probably move on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there. I I don't know enough about it. I'm not smart enough to come up with the the laws the way that they would probably work best. Yeah. But <laughs> they definitely don't work the best the way they're written right now. So no, I agree. They need not. to need to look into that. Now, talking about specifically this movie and the Little Mermaid. Um, so I mentioned that the development of this actually started in like the late 30s and then sort of went dormant for several decades and and kind of brought back up. Um. They made some changes, and one of those was adding the character of Sebastian the Crab. So originally, he was a lobster. He was like a lobster butler, and he was going to be very English and kind of proper. And somewhere along the line, one of the, I think it was somebody that was going to be doing the music, said, why don't we make him Jamaican, and we can play with that in the music. And can you imagine how different this movie would be if you didn't have Under the Sea as this, like, fun Caribbean style song. I mean, it fundamentally changes things. Yeah. Yeah. It would, uh, it would kind of make it more Peter Pan like. Yes. Than it is. Yeah. And I love like, honestly, that song's been stuck in my head all day under the sea. I can't get it out of my head now. It's yeah. too catchy. Uh, yeah. But I absolutely loved it. And I like the character of Sebastian. Now, I guess it's not actually a Jamaican accent. It's a Trinidad accent because the guy playing him um, couldn't do a Jamaican accent very well, which I thought was funny. Okay. Uh, But talk about somebody who's made a career out of one character. Um, Samuel E. Wright has been Sebastian basically since 1989. Anything with Sebastian's voice in it, it's him. Um, Oh, good. So, you know, hey, when Disney's going to pay you, you you keep doing it. Like, I get that. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, he was a ton of fun. I like the character. The movie's very uh, brief, I would say. It's not long. It's like a hundred or an hour and 26 minutes start to finish. So yeah. it's a very brisk story. Um, but I do, I, I like the characters that they, they managed to put in there. And they didn't overload it. They didn't put too many characters in, which I'm glad. 
That's yeah. an easy thing to do. Um, and they, you know, they also kind of stuck to a tried and true story mm-hmm. formula for it. It's a, it's a very rom-com, but kind of uh, made into, uh, they lowered the age yeah. of entry for it. But it's very much a rom-com type of movie. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, you know, it, the fairy tale story. Um, the, the story of the little mermaid is pretty old. Hans Christian Andersen wrote it. And I want to say it was a fairy tale from the 1800s, somewhere around there. Um, I don't remember, but I know it's pretty horrifying, especially in comparison. Oh yes. Very, very different from this. If you go and find like the original version of that, um, and read it, you, you're going to wonder how anyone could ever think to make that into a Disney film. Cause it's very different. Um, now another another character that they they didn't add so Sebastian wasn't in like that character is just not in the original fairy tale at all. He was fully made for this. Uh, one that they didn't add but but upped how the importance was Ursula. And Ursula is the the bad the the antagonist. She's the sea witch. Um, she's phenomenal. Like she's just absolutely absolutely way too much fun in this. Uh, so the design of Ursula was based off of, uh, are you familiar with divine, the drag queen? Yep. That's who yep. was the yep. design basis for Ursula. Yep. And you can totally, when you know that mm-hmm. and you're watching it, you can totally see it. Absolutely. Um, now Pat Carroll did the voice and she's f- fantastic. She's having fun. She can sing. I mean, her singing is great. Um, I really enjoyed her. However, I did read that she was not the first choice. Now she, like uh, Samuel E. Wright, has basically been Ursula since 89. Um, I'm still, like, there's still credits for her in the last year or two where she's where she's uh, doing voice of Ursula. Here is who was originally the script was written for. And tell me that, you, that this wouldn't have worked. B. Arthur. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. She'd have had a ball with it. And I guess she turned it down um, oh, for wow. whatever reason, but she would have been so good. Now, I, that's not to say that I can't say that she would be better than Pat Carroll, but she would like B. Arthur as Ursula would have just been amazing. I, I really yeah, wish we could have fun. seen and heard that. Um, yeah, it, it wouldn't necessarily be better, but it would have been fun. It would have been very fun because uh, I, I mean, anything with B. Arthur would be is is better uh, in my opinion yeah. than than without B. <laughs> Arthur. Um, but yeah, I thought, I thought that one was really interesting that they wrote the script with her in mind and then she turned it down and Pat Carroll ended up getting the role and ran with it and just, just kills it. Like she, and she doesn't even show up in the movie till what, probably half an hour in. Yeah. Something like that. (laughs) But you know, basically, I mean, you, you show up and you just choose scenery the whole time. Oh yeah. And I like the idea that like, she's a, essentially a mer person but not a fish. She's the only one we see that looks like that, which is interesting with the octopus style body. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, she, she's just a ton of fun as a sea witch. Now there was, I did read and I know there were storyboards done for it, but they never, never actually animated it out uh, a subplot at one point. And I don't know how accurate this is to the original fairy tale, but that Ursula was King Triton's sister. 
and that you know was... that sounds like something that they would do in it in an old time fairy tale yeah and then so i don't but i don't know if that was a change of the the disney writers made or or what but they ended up cutting that kind of subplot out and it honestly it doesn't hurt anything the closest you get to it is her mentioning something about when she lived in the castle um in her first scene where she kind of gruesomely eats a shrimp and it's an adorable little yeah. shrimp with big eyes and she just pops it like a little piece of popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> popcorn shrimp. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, but yeah, she, she was, I, I really like Ursula as a uh, villain in this. Um, it's very classic Disney villain. Very, she's just, she's evil. You know, she's evil. There's no question about that at all. She's not a tragic uh, character at all. She's just like, I'm evil. I'm a sea witch. I'm going to do bad stuff. Uh, yeah. You know, she makes contracts and then apparently tries to make sure that you can't fulfill your contract. Cause that was an interesting twist uh, where she has, yeah. she has her, her, uh, her pet eels stopping the, the two of them from kissing. So that was, that was different. Well, I think, I think, I think that's, that's kind of the, the difference though between um because a lot of people when they when they tell a story where the evil person is just evil for evil's sake there is always that there's there's they either nail it or they or they don't yeah and this one this one they nailed it she's uh there's not that level of just oh come on to her she is evil and she's she's Cruella Deville level. Oh yeah. On, on, on as far as character, she's still a fully formed character. Mm-hmm. She, you know, she's there, there's a foundation to her that that many people just don't seem to get to when they tell a story like that. That's true. Yeah, I, it, it's hard to say she's a fully three dimensional character only because she just doesn't have enough screen time. But yeah, she's not a a flat two dimensional character either. In yeah, so. You know, because there's there's sort of a mixture of this jealousy uh, with King Triton and what he has that she wants to take from him, but also just kind of delighting in being evil. And and she has all her little minions, um, the little like yeah. polyp things that were in the ground. That uh, those well, were all see, people. What I, what I liked about them is. They didn't explain what they were. They give you enough. They show you enough mm-hmm. that you can kind of extrapolate what they were, why they're there, how they got there. But they don't, there isn't this need that uh, many execs seem to like to, to, to want. They, they give you, they give the audience, even though it's kids, credit for having a brain yeah. and being able to figure out and not have to not overly explain what's going on with them. And that's what I liked about that part of the story. Yeah. And there was, I did watch a deleted scene. Uh, again, it was kind of storyboarded and very roughly done out that sort of, that gave you a better explanation of what those little creatures were. They had like a, this kind of timid merman who had made a, um, a contract with her and wasn't able to fulfill it because you know, the contract was you had to find some water lily within three days and, oh, it's not the season for them. That's why you couldn't find one. And he gets turned into one of those. And they ended up cutting it for time. They they felt like it slowed things down. So that's one of those, like, 
where it wasn't cut because the story, because they needed to cut it for the story, but it was another reason. And it just kind of made things flow better because I think not having that and, and then kind of the payoff is right at the end when they all come back to being fully fledged mer people. Yeah. Yeah. So, and there you're like, Oh, okay. That makes fully, fully makes sense. So yeah, I I appreciate that. They may have cut it for the time, but this, the movie's better off for it. Oh, definitely. 100%. Uh, our main character is Ariel, and she is voiced by, uh, where is her name? Jodie Benson does her voice. Uh, fantastic voice. But guess who the uh, visual kind of basis was for Ariel? So we had Divine was the basis for Ursula. Uh, but the visual basis for Ariel, who, mind you, and we're going to talk about this just a little bit, is a 16-year-old mer- mermaid at this point. So this yeah. would have been the late 80s. I, you... think, I, think I think I remember being told what it was, but <laughs> I don't remember who. Alyssa Milano. Oh, I could totally see it. And that, that was who they based that on. Uh, off of the strength of her being on who's the boss. So that was that. Now the character is 16 years old and Prince Eric is apparently the birthday celebration that they're having for him is for his 18th birthday. So at least they're kind of close-ish in age. It's not quite as bad as her being 16 and he's a 25 year old prince or something, but still, yeah, Watching it through the lens of today, it's something where I think if you were taking that fairy tale and adapting it for the first time today, you would probably make one or both of those characters a little bit older. Yeah. Um, her her at the very least 18. Yeah. Now, I, I have all sorts of issues with, and it's, it's standard fairy tale storytelling where... Uh, you know, true love and falling in love at first sight and all that kind of stuff. To me especially now feels forced and feel doesn't doesn't work for me like I have a tough time connecting with that idea I do as well I do um, as well but you know in a in a fairy tale I sort of I give them some leeway but it's I had notes written down like oh it's fairy tale love that's right they don't actually have to ever meet yeah. each other or have a conversation to to know that you love this person so also well, I think it's uh-huh. Oh, I was just going to say, she's 16 years old, she's a mermaid, and she must be freakishly strong because she pulled him from the depths of the water out onto shore. That's not well, easy to do. I think mermaids are supposed to be freakishly strong. Well. I could uh, be wrong on that. Uh, I, I, get, I get all my, my folklore <laughs> mixed up. Um, what I always find interesting is our modern interpretation of story ta- of fairy tales and the way that we tell them, which has been very Disney-fied mm-hmm. versus the way that they used to be told before Disney got a hold of them. And I don't know necessarily which one is better or which one is worse um, because fairy tales and folklore prior to Disney being, uh, prior to our modern take on them and Disney telling them were, um, cautionary tales yes they were basically supposed to teach you what not to do hansel and gretel you know is is very different now than very than than uh the brothers grim the way that they told it you know this witch witch 
is actually eating children. Yeah. Because they because they wandered away from their from their parents. Um, I, I like I said, I don't know that that's not in. I don't know that that's necessarily better than the way that we tell it today, because um, there's still there's still that that um, that element to it, but it was much more gruesome when the Grimm's <laughs> Grimm's did it, and they their version of it is uh, is a modernized for their time version of that story because that story is even older than them. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very interesting the way that things tell because the way that we tell fairy tales now, we tell them because we want it to be a nice, clean story for children. We don't want to frighten them. Mm-hmm. And back when I covered La, not La, was it Labyrinth or the Dark Crystal for this show? I think it was Dark Crystal. I don't think we've done Labyrinth yet. Um, one of the things that I really liked about that was that was a movie aimed at children by Jim Henson but purposely made to be somewhat frightening for kids because he kind of had this idea that kids need to be scared every so often. They need to have something that, that scares them a little bit. Not, not quite so gruesome as maybe a, 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 a straight grim fairy tale, um, you know, the witch eating the children, or at least not in a graphic way, but this yeah. idea that kids need something to kind of don't overly sanitize stuff for them. And I sort of, I kind of agree with that because I look at some of the things that I had to watch growing up in the 80s and early 90s, and I can see the transition and how how that programming was changing over that time period, and then I can see what was coming out after I got into my teens and and out of high school and all of this and how it changed and evolved over the years. And you're sort of, I've sort of seen not so much a a complete swing back, but at least a little bit in that direction where some, obviously at a certain age, like even when I was younger, you know, Sesame street type stuff was still very sanitized for young kids, but that was meant for like six and under. But once you started getting closer to like eight, nine, 10 years old, you can kind of handle a little bit more. And I think if it's done right, I think it can be done really well and not overly Disney-fied. Um, yeah. Well, so. something somebody, I was watching something today and I can't remember what it was, but basically they were saying that we always treat children as a whole, like they're dumb. Yeah. They're not dumb. They're just inexperienced. Mm-hmm. We need to start. We need to, it, it would be better if we accept the fact that they are intelligent and they will understand things, you just have to explain it to them properly. And I think some of that is what Henson was talking about and why he, he was like, look, kids can handle it. Let's, let's give them something that challenges them a little bit. And I I agree with that. Um, Disney actually is responsible for a show that I found as a children's show um, is a brilliant one. And that was Phineas and Ferb, which the thing I love about that is that show doesn't deal with like it does it's not centered around a conflict between characters it's centered around them getting along and working together but it also fosters this imagination um and it is layered it's like the old warner brothers cartoons and old cartoons where it's layered with jokes that i can sit and watch phineas and ferb with uh a nine-year-old and they're laughing and i'm laughing sometimes at the same thing sometimes at a couple different things and there's there's these like so 
you know, Disney's not completely, that's why I have that kind of love hate relationship. Cause there's some stuff Disney does that I just can't stand. And yeah, a, a lot of that is their live action television for some reason, just bores the hell out of me. I think because it's too formulaic, but they, they take some chances with some of their animation. Well, it's, uh, they're, they're live action. It's it's not only formulaic, but you have a lot of mugging for the camera, yeah. which gets old and annoying very quickly. Yeah, and it's the same. It's all the same formula, and it's all the same yeah. kind of stuff, just repackaged with a different veneer. But it's the same yeah. stories being told. And a laugh there. track, and yeah. a laugh track to tell you when to laugh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've definitely gotten tired because, of that over the because years. Because the jokes, because the jokes don't, the jokes aren't good enough to stand up on their own. No, <laughs> no, they're not. Um, but yeah, I mean, Ariel as a character in this movie, the other thing that I thought was kind of interesting is she's sixteen, but they they wrote her a little bit stronger than a lot of uh, Disney, especially princess characters, were written prior to this movie. You know, she. She's rebellious. Um, she knows her father doesn't want her going to go into the surface, but she's doing it anyway. But she's not just doing it to spite him. She's just so enamored with what's going on that she can't help herself but want to go and experience that. And I like that reason better than spite your parents. Oh, absolutely. Because it feels more authentic as a reasoning. Yeah. Like, I just yeah. want, I want this thing. Like, I can't understand why I do, but I want it so badly that I'm going to do whatever I can to get it. And, you know, if, of course, I find it silly that she falls in love with this prince without ever actually, like, speaking to him. She just rescued him and then sang to him. And that was, that was enough for her. Uh, and that's, that's infatuation. That's not love. <laughs> yes, it is. That's very true. Um, but just overall, I thought she was kind of an interesting character because she's not just a princess and not just a damsel in distress. She's got some agency. She manages to change her father's heart by the end of the movie. Like he's, he comes to see that, that uh, this is going to make her happy and is willing to give her up for that. So I enjoyed that of it. it yeah, it's I a enjoyed very, that too. Yeah. It's a very simple story when you really get down to it. And that works in this movie's favor because it, they, they kept it short and uh, they didn't overly try to tell the story. It was like, here's a very simple story and here's some fun visuals and, uh, and some cool music to it. Broadway style. It's exactly what it is. And it works. Yeah. Now the, the part that I did not like about that was her father. Um, okay. I just get, I just get very tired of the overprotective father that overreacts violently because he can't control his daughter. Yeah. Um, there are so many, there's so, so much subtext to that uh, about, about the, the, about the way that, uh, about toxic, toxic masculinity, mm -hmm. about misogyny of, uh, on, you know, girls not having their own agency and their own ability to make their own decisions. And it's just, it always, it, it, the older I get, the more it bothers me. <laughs> I can see you that. Know, cause, cause it, it, and at the same time, most good fathers don't do that. Yeah. 
I mean, in, he's in, supposed in, to be being portrayed as a good father, and most good fathers, yes, they have objections to the things that their that their kids do because they know better than their kids. Um, they they their their kids are more naive and aren't again aren't experienced. They have mm-hmm. a better experience, but throwing a temper tantrum isn't teaching anybody anything. <laughs> this is true. Now, in in King Triton's defense, I will say that number one. There's no mother present, which I actually forgot that there's like no mother character in this movie. At Disney all. mothers don't exist in Disney films. Well, they either <laughs> they either don't exist or they're the wicked stepmother. But I, yeah, that I'd forgotten about. But also, not only is there not a mom around, so he's he's doing this on his own and the king of whatever, however many subjects he's got. This is his seventh daughter. So. <laughs> The poor guy has seven kids he's trying to manage. I can understand where the youngest one being like, I want to go up to the surface. He might throw a tantrum. I'm not saying it's the right way to do it, yeah. but, you know, well, guys probably well, he, at his wit's well, end at that point. That's, that's, that's another thing that's not realistic. I, <laughs> I know I, we're talking about real realism for a cartoon, <laughs> but go with me for a second here. Sure. My mother is the oldest of eight children, okay? Mm-hmm. Parents even back then are always much more vigilant with the first child than they are with the seventh. True. (laughs) By the seventh child they're you know, they've been there. They've done that They're They know the things that they need to worry about, the things that they don't need to worry about. And sometimes they may be a little too lax about it. They don't overreact like that. (laughs) Yeah. And again, I I get from a storytelling standpoint, they got to create some kind of conflict to get her to do what the story demands that she does. But, um, you know, at the same time, it's like, I don't know. And maybe had we seen more interaction with the other daughters and with them and Ariel, because they're really like you could honestly tell somebody that I didn't Ariel, know. I didn't know she was the seventh daughter. Yeah. That whole <laughs> musical number at the beginning, those were his six other daughters and they were introducing oh. her in her first musical uh, appearance. Oh, I just thought they were like courtiers. <laughs> no, and <laughs> nope they they were his other six daughters. So okay, and you know, like we said, there's no mom. I think the the thing that threw me was there's no mention at all of her. Usually, if there's yeah. no mother in a Disney film, it's you know your mother died or, or something. There's just nothing. They just said nope, never mind. The the damn fish has more screen time than a mom. Flounder. <laughs> Which, that was another one that always cracked me up is, let's name a character after the the uh, breed of fish that it is. Like the species. Yeah, yeah. You're just was Flounder. Wasn't Flounder, wasn't, was Fla- Flounder was the one that was Buddy Hackett, right? No, Buddy Hackett was the seagull, Scuttle. Oh, that's right, that's right. Yeah. Um, Which, so there is a live action version of this movie getting made. Um, as Disney is going through and remaking all of their stuff live action. That's their new version of the Disney vault. Pretty much. Uh, So the live action version of this is swapping out um, the seagull as a male, a male seagull for a female, uh, like a, like a diver fish um, or diver bird type. Uh, I don't know if it's like a pelican or what. So they're, they're changing it up a little bit. They're not quite going Lion King route. Um, cause okay. that was the thing I heard about Lion King was it was almost too much like the animated and they're, yeah, I'd heard that too. It was like almost shot for shot. The same thing. Yeah. Whereas this, that sounds like they're doing I mean, some... so 
if that's what you're going to do, why why am I going to watch the live action? I'll just watch the the original because the original is fantastic. Yes, it is. Um, I also read on that live action Little Mermaid that they're bringing back the composer from this to write a couple of new songs as well as do the, the full score for this new movie. So that's a good good move on there oh that sounds like fun yeah granted it's disney they can just back the the money truck up and say you want to come do this movie you you really do and eventually they'll hit the right price so yeah but i'm you know i'm curious i'm curious to see what they do in adapting it because if the changes that they're making are significant enough it could be interesting to watch i think that was my problem with lion king was it was like okay you're the same thing as you i could just go watch the original lion king i mean right down to having james earl jones in both and i don't know i like john favreau as a director who did the live action i in quotes the cgi lion king yeah yeah but i think that was just maybe a little too safe a play so yeah i'm curious i'm curious to see what comes out but overall, like the, this this movie to kick off the Disney Renaissance, it definitely hits all the notes that you think of when you think of a Disney animated sure. film. I see why it did. I I see why the po- it, it it kicked off the popularity. And again, they they they, they came in really strong with this and got better. Yeah, because you know, kind of kind of peaking at Lion King. Yeah, they really took that formula. And refined it because Beauty and the Beast was the first animated film to ever get nominated for an Oscar for Best Picture. Um, And until they expanded the category to be 10 finalists, it was the only animated film that ever got nominated for Best Picture. So they really, they took what little, what worked in The Little Mermaid and they refined it over the next few years and made some just classic animated films um, taking these old stories. So it's kind of fun. See now, it, I, I did have a note here mm-hmm. uh, regarding the on, animation, and and it, it, it kind of makes me rethink of what I originally thought um, because I was sitting there looking at it, and you can tell that these animators really enjoyed doing the movement for underwater. Yes, and and the the interesting thing I I did not realize it was the last hand painted one because I had been told. Um, that uh was it um the rapunzel one tangled 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 the what the animators really and you can really tell about about tangled is the animator the animators had finally figured out with digital animation hair Mm -hmm. oh yeah and and hair in that is completely different than the hair in this mm-hmm. but at the same time you can totally tell that they really enjoyed figuring out the movement under the, how how these characters would move underwater and the fact that it's hand drawn makes it even more impressive yeah well one of the ways that they did that is they went back to a technique that they had stopped using um i think sometime in the 60s so a lot of the early um, Disney animated stuff, they would have, they would shoot uh, film of people doing the movements and then use that for reference. And then somewhere along the line, they kind of stopped doing that. They they got back into that for this film. So they had uh, like a, basically a body double. Um, okay. 
that they would film her like in a tank of water swimming around and the way that she moved and the way that her hair moved. And they could then use that for their reference points for the hand animation. And you do see how different that is from, you know, even stuff that was a few years earlier and, and all that. And it works because it really made, yeah, they threw a lot of resources at this movie. I think it had a budget of about $40 million for an animated film in the eighties. Oh, wow. They opened a second studio. So they, they based it out of the main Disney animation studio, but they opened up a second studio um, in Orlando to help with the animation on this. And they contracted, I think, I can't remember if it was a Hong Kong or a Chinese studio to help with some more animation. Specifically, those that one was for a lot of the bubbles in the underwater stuff. Because if you think about trying to hand draw all those bubbles constantly, like that's just crazy to yeah. think about. So they really went kind of above and beyond um, and really went kind of whole hog on just the animation part of this to really, really kick it into gear and make it look good. And it, it does. It looks great. And the transfer, I watched it on Disney Plus. The transfer just looks fantastic. Yeah. So, but you're right. Like stuff yeah, like the I, way I watched her it on Disney moves. Plus as well. Yeah. <laughs> the way her hair moves no. or the way the, the tentacles move from Ursula and all that, like it just, it feels like yeah. it's underwater. Now to give you kind of uh, give the audience kind of a, a bit of a co- more context as far as the money that you're talking about for this right. show, for this movie, forty million for an animated movie. Now, the the initial budget for Waterworld was seventy million dollars, mm-hmm. and it was news, massive news when it broke. A hundred million, because no movie had ever been made that with that large a budget before. It ended up by what was I was just looking it up, one hundred and seventy-five million dollars, which was a massive scandal because they were so over budget. And they went forty million dollars for an animated movie in the eighties. Yeah, that's that was the basic budget for your average middle of the road movie. Mm-hmm. They didn't throw that kind of money at an animated movie. No, and in fact, you wouldn't see another, like uh, Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin had 25 and $28 million budgets in comparison. Oh, wow. Like, it wasn't until Lion King where they went back up over $40 million, and that was five years later. So, right. You know, but, but at the same time, I, I, they probably cut some of that budget because they, they had stopped doing the hand-drawn. And they yeah, they definitely... Because with with the digital stuff, what they were able to do was still hand draw everything, but then digitally animate it and also digitally color it. And that hand painting is what takes so long. There is some digital work in The Little Mermaid. Some of what they went on to do, there's kind of proto versions of it. Uh, I think the last shot of the movie where Triton puts the the rainbow over and the boat is going off, their marriage vessel is heading off into the, the sunset, that's... Right. That boat is a digital wireframe. Okay. Um, but still, you know, 95% of the movie or whatever is, is all hand-drawn, hand-painted, uh, which is just, I mean, it's an, it's crazy to think about because, but yeah, you know, film is 24 frames a second, so every second is 24 drawings that all have to be yeah. drawn and hand, hand-painted, each individual <laughs> one. You're, and that's why especially older animated movies aren't as long. You can get away with yeah. having a 
two hour long animated film these days. Yeah. And going back to kind of what you were talking about, about having them have live action drawing uh, models, mm-hmm. you can see that play out. They continue to use that um, and got better with it, co- kind of culminating uh, in this period with the Lion King. All of the movements of the animals in the Lion King were all they had actual they 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 had, stu- had studies of actual lions yep. actual hyenas that's where they got all their movements and stuff from so you obviously it paid off oh totally yeah that's that's something that uh because you notice even when you look at um a later disney pixar with like finding nemo and the way the fish move in that is a little more realistic than than the well we didn't get a ton of different fish in this. It was mostly from most of the fish were actually in the under the sea music part. Now that I think about it outside of that, it's yeah. people and flounder and flounder is closer to a clownfish than an actual flounder anyway. But <laughs> yes. Yeah. Cause flounders are flat. Yeah. Um, he, you know, it's funny for as well known a character as he is, he doesn't really do a whole lot in this movie. No, he doesn't. He's, he's really only in a couple of scenes. I did also think it was funny and I had to make myself a note on this. Disney can't make a movie with animal-based characters without at least one character somewhere in there that is because you got you've got talking fish, right? And all these anthropomorphized fish and mer people, but the shark is just this brainless beast. <laughs> that that happens like in yeah. all of their movies. Yeah. You see that in in uh something like uh The Rescuers where, you know, there'll be all these characters that are talking mice and all that. And then the dog is this brainless beast that does nothing but bark. So I always find that funny. Right. <laughs> the crocodile yeah. and Peter Pan. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> so although, although okay, there's, there's been kind of um, lore that's kind of sprung up around that crocodile <laughs> through, through the years. But um, the other, the other characters in there that I thought were impressive in the way that they, they portrayed them and, and, and animated them was the eels. Mm-hmm. Those, those eels were, were impressive. They were. I think the only thing with them that bugged me was they couldn't determine which eye was white and which eye was yellow on them, so it kept switching. Yeah. I would see a scene, and it was like the outside were white, and then the next time you saw them, the inside eyes were white, and I got really confused. <laughs> And could Ursula see through their eyes, or were they just reporting back? Like I that that was a little hand wavy and got a little confusing for me. Um, Yeah, which that's my overly analytical adult brain thinking about it, as opposed to a kid who is watching just like this is fun. So that's you know that happens. But overall, like I I like this movie. It's not my favorite Disney by far. Like. For me, I there are other Disney movies that I put higher than this, but it's a very well done, it's a very fun story. And again, only being an hour and 26 minutes long, including the credits, helps. Should we talk about the um, the original clamshell packaging for the videotape? <laughs> the, uh, the rather phallic-looking castle? Is that what we're talking <laughs> <Yes>. about? <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny because... Back when the, uh, basically when the Lion King and Aladdin came out, I was working at a video store. Mm-hmm. So we had a, uh, we of course had a, hu- a huge section of, of Disney films. And the, um, 
and the way that they were displayed on the shelves was they would, you know, we would take the package that the, that the videotape would come in and that would be, uh, you know, we would tape it closed and put it on a shelf and the, and the, the rental would be behind it. And the original clamshell that we had was the original clamshell that they <laughs> pulled. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because I will say I saw that prior to anybody mentioning it and I don't really, I, I wouldn't have noticed it. Um, like it just didn't register for me. And then of course, as soon as somebody points it out, you can't unsee it. Yeah, exactly. But it, 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 it was the same thing for me. Um, I, that's where I think a lot of that stuff happens is most people, they don't pay attention. They, they got too many other things to, to, to worry about, to pay attention, but then someone notices. Yeah. And someone's like, and then when you notice it, you can't unsee it. Uh, yeah, including um, the other, the other one was, um, and you. This is another one you just don't notice. But the clergyman that's presiding over the wedding, uh-huh. uh, the wedding of um, Eric and Ursula in her in her whatever form. Um, yeah, people complained that if you slowed it down and you focused, you could see that he had uh, a boner. But it wasn't. It was the knee. It was the way they animated his stubby little legs and his knee. Right. But some someone in like Why Arkansas. Why are you slowing it down to watch it? I don't know. But someone in Arkansas actually filed a lawsuit against Walt Disney for. Um, of course they did. Both of those things. <laughs> of course they did. <laughs> because we can't have nice things. That's why. So this one. Well, I'll t- is- tell you. I'll tell you something. Like kind of an example of that. Um, in the movie Rob Roy, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen that. I have. Um, at the time that it came out on video, it was, it became a, a big old rumor that you could actually see when, when Liam Neeson, there's a scene where Liam Neeson is coming out of the lake to his wife and she hands him his tartan and he wraps it around himself. Mm-hmm. And the rumor was, if you slowed it down and went frame by frame, you could see little Liam dangling. <laughs> so I, of course, did that. Lo and behold, it was there. Mm. But at the same time, unless somebody told me, told you that you could do that, I wouldn't have done that. Right. It was uh, just a movie. It's just a scene in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. That, that <laughs> reminds me of the Who Framed Roger Rabbit one where supposedly you could go frame by frame on the scene where um, the taxi cab gets like run off the road and Jessica rabbit comes flying out of it. You could go frame by frame and see up her dress, which they, they claim you could see like they had animated it. And then later on they blacked it all out, but it's like, okay, who's sitting here going frame by frame on that scene to see if you can see up an animated character's dress. Why why are you doing that in the first place? A horny dude. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's the same people that want to see Liam's Neeson. So, whatever. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But so, okay. So now that it's 31 years I think after this movie came out and you finally saw it for the first time, what did you think of it uh overall as a movie? I thought it was fun. I thought it was I'm glad I I glad I watched it. Um I wasn't blown away. Mm-hmm. Um I can see why people love this movie. Um, I think it's good. It was good. I'm glad I saw it. 
Do you think that you missed out on anything by not having seen it when it was new in the late 80s? Or do you feel like, take it or leave it, you, it didn't really affect you in any way? Like, um, there, were so, there were a couple of things that I, I better understand now, but basically the chatter that had gone on around it, you could pretty much extrapolate what they were talking about without having seen the movie. So no, I don't think I need, I, I don't think I really missed out on anything, but not seeing it back then other than uh, a collective experience with other people who really liked the movie. That's fair. Do you think if you had been say, you know, closer to the target audience that you probably would have gone see it? Um, Cause I was, Oh, I absolutely. Like, I don't remember, I remember watching this, but I don't think I went to a theater to see it. I think my sister would have been, like five when this came out. So just, just a little bit under where it would have really appealed to her. And while I enjoyed it and I watched it whenever we got it on VHS and, and all that, it wouldn't have been one that I would have been rushing out to see. Unlike say, uh, Aladdin, which was a couple years later. I was like, I was all about going to see Aladdin. Um, yeah, no. Um, well this came out what year? 89. Yeah. I was 29. Okay. So, (laughs) You're not, you weren't in the so, target audience. So no, I, I was not. That. If I, if I had been, absolutely. Uh, the, my, the first, the first, um, animated film that I saw, what it, I saw in the theater was Pete's dragon. I loved it. I was oh, seven years old. You know, of course I would have, if I was seven years old, I'd have, I'd have begged to go see this movie. <laughs> now you saw, you've seen some of the other Disney Renaissance ones then you've seen Beauty and the Beast yeah. or okay. Yeah. So it was just happened to be and, Little Mermaid that, that you passed. Yeah. Um, one of my, one of my favorite movies uh, of all time still to this day is Lion King. Okay. I love that movie. That That's is a, great a good movie. one. That was like the, th- I think the third episode of the show I did uh, on Lion King. Cause a friend of mine who I've known since we were freshmen in high school had never seen it. And I was like, really? How? Like how how has your wife not made you watch this movie? Yet? And he had his his daughter is like prime age for all that Disney stuff. So I was like, how has your daughter not made you sit down and watch that? Because I know your wife, and I know she would would do it. So that was fun, but excellent. Well, this this has been a fun conversation. Thank you for coming on this week. I'm glad that you thanks finally got to me. see this. I, thanks for having me. This was fun. I'm glad we did this. I am too. Um, now I know that you're on Twitter. Uh, are you, you're, uh-huh. you're marginally active on there, aren't you? You can let people know where they can yeah. find you. Yeah. You can find me at Aset Isis, A-S-E-T-I-S-I-S on Twitter. And now I know how to pronounce that. It's been how <laughs> it's long? A, it's a common, I know. Well, it's a combination. Um, uh, it's a, kind of a long, boring story, but, uh, I am very into ancient Egyptology, ancient Egypt. Okay. And of, of course, ISIS is always taken because mm-hmm. a, it's, it's a, it's only four, four letters. B it's a, it's a, 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 an ancient goddess. Everybody always tries to get goddesses are always gods and goddesses are always one of the first things to go. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just the way it is. And um, there was at one point, uh, in Egyptology, this feeling that Isis is a was a mistranslation of the original name, the Egyptian name. Um, Isis was the Greek version of the name, and they felt that Aset, A-S-E-T, was the 
English translation from the original Egyptian hmm. of Isis's name. And as, which I, I later found out has fallen out of favor and that is not the case. Basically, that entire theory, um, modern Egyptology feels is racist because Isis is the, is the closest that we have to how they actually trans, uh, how they actually said her name. Okay. But by that point, but by that point, I was using a set as a, as a character name. In I started using it in uh, in EverQuest, and then I used it in World of Warcraft. And again, in social media, four letter names were unless you were uh, in there from day one, are almost impossible to get. Right, especially if it's a god or a goddess. Mm-hmm. So I combined the two. Perfect. So you were the EverQuest side of the ancient EverQuest Asheron's Call line. Yes, I was. I started playing. Um, I started playing. It, it launched in the summer of '99. I started playing in in January of 2000 because a friend of mine, her boyfriend, had been playing it. So she started playing it. And my birthday is in January. And she took me to the store and said, "How would you like an addiction?" <laughs> See, I fell on the other side of that, which I played Asheron's Call starting in 2000 and played that for many, many years. So Yeah, I never played that. Well, I, I, am not, I am kind of a one. It, with a game that size, I'm kind of a one game kind of person. Oh, yeah. I no, can't absolutely. concentrate on more than one. You know, and then, and then you know, we, I, I got into an end game rating uh, and then, mm-hmm. uh, and then World, World of Warcraft launched and our, my, uh, about six months into World of Warcraft, because we were losing so many people to World of Warcraft, our our guild almost wholesale moved over to World of Warcraft. <laughs> you know, I was um, when we stopped playing. I was you know like third, I think, best equipped druid wow. server wide or something ridiculous like that. And I had a it. Um, you, I used to be able to look up my played time. Uh, on the EverQuest site, and it was it was embarrassing because <laughs> it was it was like almost 400 days of play time. They didn't call that, and, game, and it's even more than that. Yeah, they didn't call that game EverCrack for nothing. No, they didn't. But I'll tell you, I could not do it today. No, I could I not do. No, the um, the the things that made it compelling at the time would drive me crazy. Because one of the things, one of the things that you could not do, you could not solo in EverQuest. They, it was, they were draconian in forcing you to group, Mm -hmm. Um, which kind of fomented this weird um, community that surrounded it. Um, The World of Warcraft community is much more, it's much less toxic Mm -hmm. and Em, uh, embracing of, of of everybody in the community than EverQuest ever was, um, which which I, I don't know if you've if you've seen some of the boards on World of Warcraft, it's it can be kind of surprising. But EverQuest at the time was very toxic. <laughs> yeah, that's what I remember. Well, this has been a really fun conversation. We'll have to do it again sometime. We'll find another movie that you haven't seen, or maybe one that there you are really many. like. But either way, <laughs> there are many. Oh, yeah. oh, I, oh, yeah, I could, I could, there are, there are movies. I was, again, I worked at a video store, mm-hmm. so I have a, 
there's a a big section of movies that I that I have that that I know that 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 I've seen that are really good that people just haven't seen. Yep, I'm the same way. <laughs> I spent I did my time working in a video store. Well, very very cool. Well, again, a set ISIS if uh, on Twitter and um, yeah. now next week. Uh, I'm going to have uh, my co-host from Let's Watch Highlander, Audie Norman, is going to come on. We're going to talk about Fargo because he's never seen Fargo before. Really? Yeah. Oh, so, that'll be fun. That'll that's going to be fun. Be fun. I, I'm really interested to hear his take and his thoughts on it because, uh, honestly, I I really, really like that movie. It's I've done a few Coen Brothers movies so far, and I'm always fascinated when people haven't seen some of their work. And I really like to to hear what people think of them because – Cohen brothers are kind of that, uh, you know, if you're a film buff, you love them, but if you aren't, you can still really enjoy their movies, but maybe you don't get them or you do, but you don't understand why it, it, it always makes for a good conversation. So, uh, that's going to be next. Yeah, week. I've, I've kind of, there's a couple of the Cohen brothers movies that I'm not as big a fan of, but oh, yeah. o- well, overall I think they're, they're well done. You know, you do enough movies. They're not all, they're not all going to be gold. Like at some point you're gonna make a dud, so that's well. Be there next is week. there are there there's one one in particular that people love that I just don't get, but mm. that's uh, just that's just the way the movies. Not everything is for you. That's true. So yeah, that'll be next week. Fargo with Audie Norman, um, oddly normal one on Twitter. So if you have any questions or anything you want us to talk about with Fargo, uh, definitely find me on Twitter as TV's Travis. Uh, this show gets recorded every Sunday night at twitch.tv slash TV's Travis. So if you want to be like Wicked Kitten or Phelan or Phil Rudd and join the chat room and yell at me while we're talking, um, please do because it's a ton of fun. And uh, until next week, I always like to say to get out and enjoy your movies. And it's a crazy time right now, so be excellent to each other. Ignatius, Crustaceous, Sebastian! Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>